So would y'all guys help me um, in welcoming our guest speaker? He's a true brother. Yeah, y'all can clap now. That's, that's your cue. He's a true friend and brother of this house, Mr. Blaine Bartell. Love you, bro. Barty, good to see you. Good to be here. This is our home away from home. We love this place. We live a long ways away now. We are in Wagner, Oklahoma. Good, good 40 minutes. 35 some days, just depends on the day. But uh, we love this place. Uh, I'm sad that Matt's not here today. You can usually riff on him a little bit when he's here, but he's uh, with his, uh, I don't know how many boys, one of the boys maybe uh, just uh, spending some time. How many? Just one, yeah. Good. And, uh, but he did watch the first service. They, they were online, so I was pleased to hear that. He's not skipping church. So I am especially grateful this morning uh, because I, I travel and speak quite a bit, and unfortunately, uh, my wife works for a living, so she doesn't get to travel with me all the time. Most of my travels begin on Friday and come home on Sunday, and she works, she works Fridays, but she is here today, and that really makes me feel good. So Lori is here, and... Uh, Usually in a marriage, you know, there's a combination of brains and beauty, one's brains, one, well, she got both. And so I'm just along for the ride and we're, uh, we're loving life. House of Resurrection, thank you, uh, uh, all of you that have supported us. I, this church uh, is a partner with us in building a, uh, a, a center, a healing center for those that uh, are suffering with sexual addiction, uh, marital uh, brokenness because of that. And so... We are making incredible progress. Uh, our goal and our hope, God willing, finances willing, is that we'll begin uh, construction the first of probably January, February of 2024. We're in the final stages of preparing the property, raising our final amount of funding, and uh, we're going to be ready to go. So thank you for all of your uh, support on that. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about this morning something. I've never talked about, ever. I mean, I've been preaching for over 30 years and I've never, ever talked about this. Uh, and I felt, uh, first of all, this was something that God has been working in my own life. I always speak out of what I'm learning and how I'm growing and, and how God is cultivating my own soul. And, and, and yet I feel like this is uh, for more than just myself. I feel like this is something that we need uh, as believers and as followers of Jesus and certainly as the church. And I'm going to talk about who we are not. We hear a lot of messages about who we are, who we are in Christ, who we are as Christ followers, who we are as a church. And uh, I thought it would be good to talk about who we are not. And I'm, I'm going to begin with a story because everyone likes a good story. And, and this is an especially good story. And it's good because uh, good stories have surprise endings, and they are somewhat traumatic. They, they kind of grab your soul, and this is a very traumatic story. Lori will tell you the trauma that, that I endured as a result of this happening, and it's a, it's a true story. It's, it's something that actually happened in, in our lives, in my life especially, last February. So last February, I think it was maybe a Friday or Saturday night, Lori's gone to sleep. I decide it's time to go to sleep, and I turn out the, 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 the light in the bedroom, 
And I put my head on the pillow, and as I'm laying on the pillow, I'm looking at our bedroom window. And it has these, these blinds that are closed on the window. But through a crack in the blinds, I think that I see fire in February at midnight. Now, this is where you should know something about me. I get things done, okay? But not always right away. My love language is no deadlines. I am the king of procrastination. My wife will tell you that. And so I'm looking at the fire and that part of me is kicking in, believe it or not. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to rationalize not getting out of bed at midnight. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe Josh, my neighbor's grilling. I, I seriously thought that. Or it doesn't look that big. <laughs> maybe it'll go out. Uh, and then I think, well, maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe there, there is no fire. And I just kept, like, for about 20 seconds, I just kept looking. And finally, I looked over at Lori, who's sleeping beside me, and this came to me. If I don't get up right now and do something about this, there will be hell to pay at some point in our marriage. Like, I, I got to do something. And so I get up, put my shirt, T-shirt on, put my, I didn't even put my shirt on, I just put some shorts on. Ran out there, and yes, Yes, there was a fire. And what I had seen was only a very small part of the fire. It was massive. There was this wall of fire in our yard coming towards our huge dried out wood porch, which was attached to our house. And there was, trust me, no time to lose. So I quickly got out my phone and I thought, I've got to document this. I've got to snap a picture. Because <laughs> no one will believe me in the morning. And so, yes, I brought a picture. Don't tell me this was some small fire. Now, this wasn't the actual photo that I snapped. <laughs> As it turns out, somehow it didn't, it didn't happen. Like, I went back to my phone later, and I like, like, where's the photo? And I guess I didn't snap it but I, I found this on the internet, and that's really close <laughs> to what was happening in our, in our yard. And so I was like freaking out. This, this is not my stuff. I am not good in emergencies. I'm not great in crisis, but I thought this is, this is my chance. This is my chance to save our house from consuming everything. So what do I do? I, I look to the pool. We have a, a small pool, and, I, and, I, and I, I see a glass on a table on our porch, and I, a glass, water, and I'm, and I'm like, no, that's not going to do it. It's going to be too slow, and so I look to the tap, and I see a garden hose by the tap, and so I quickly attach a garden hose. I run, and it's not long enough, not near long enough, so I run and get a second garden hose, attach that to the first one, run, it's still not long enough, and finally, the third garden hose, I get it attached, and it is long enough, and so I'm re but the water is not turned on, so I go all the way back to the tap, I turn on the water, run back to the garden hose, and I grab that hose like a gangster, 
environment. I am spraying out that fire. It is going out so quick, and I am just feeling absolute relief that this didn't destroy us. And mostly, can I tell you what I felt? I felt this, this dream come true in my life. Because in that moment, I became something that I have always wanted to be, all of my life, a first responder. I love first responders. I love firemen and EMT people. And we all do as Americans, you know, when a crisis happens, we, we see and we interview and we hear about the first, and I've always wanted to be that, and, and I had become that. I was the first responder, a true hero. Back to the crisis. Get it out. I don't even wake Lori up. I'm like, I'm going to surprise her. I'm going to tell her in the morning about this incredible feat. And so get up in the morning, tell her the story. She's freaking out. She comes out. And I do snap a photo of the remains of that fire because I wanted her to see it. I wanted everyone to see it. So I, I have that photo. You could see it was a massive blaze, consumed a good 10 square feet of our, our yard. But you could see the trail going back to the right along the fence. And I know all of you are wondering and, and, and thinking where, how at midnight in February did a fire start? And that was my question as well. And so I called my, my dear friend, Josh. He's my neighbor. Because the fire started on his side of our fence, burned through our fence, and then went to my yard. And so I'm, I'm, I'm calling Josh. So I'm like, hey, Josh. Did you know I put out a massive fire last night? He said, no, I did not know that. I said, well, if you'll walk over to your, your window and your back, you'll see our fence, part of it is no longer there. He said, you're kidding. I said, I'm not. I put it out. He walks over, and all I hear as he gets to that window is a gasp. I mean, an audible gasp. And then I hear, oh, no. I could tell something bad had happened. He said, Blaine, that's where our chicken coop was. It is completely incinerated. I said, you had a coop for chickens right next to our fence? And he said, yes. And it had an electric heater in it. And suffice to say, something happened with that electric heater. It caught on fire. I said, what did you have an electric heater in there for? He said, because we had a bunch of newborn chicks. And we we're trying to keep them warm at night. And I said, newborn chicks? And he said, yes, seven. Now, hold on. I want to tell you something. Every single baby chick survived. I want to tell you that, but I can't. <laughs> Sadly, it didn't happen. And that is the purpose of this story. I am a bad fireman. Because good firemen cause lives to be saved, 
not to perish. I was more concerned about my grass than I was going to the source of the fire and maybe pulling out baby chicks and rescuing them. And in the end, the reason I'm a bad fireman, the reason I could never be a fireman, is I love jobs where you don't have the risk of dying. <laughs> I like jobs like this. And I, I've discovered in life, saints, that one of the most beautiful things that you can do, one of the most uh, opportune things that you can strive for is to find out and discover who you are not. Because if we can discover some of the things that we're not, I think we'll get to who we really are. And who you really are matters. Who you are as a person, as a human being, really matters. And, and we're going to take a look at a, at a man that was one of the most unique men in all of Scripture. They, they call him John the Baptist. <laughs> and look at this, this story. This is, this is a great encounter. And, it, and, it, and it's found in John 1. And it says, now this is the testimony of John. That when the Jews sent, what? These religious leaders, priests, Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, they said, who are you? Question of identity. Who are you, John? And he confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, what? I am not the Christ. He made it clear. I am not your man. I'm not the Messiah. And then they said, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. <laughs> are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those that sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John was like, hey man, I know who I am. I'm a voice speaking in the wilderness, make way for the path of Christ, the Messiah. I love that. Here's what Jesus said about John. Jesus said, here's the truth. Of all the men, of all the people that have been born in the world, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said, this man was unlike any other man. And I think he was a great man. And I think he carried an amazing mantle and anointing on his life because he knew who he was not. He was clear on who he was not. I guess 13 years ago, I went through a crisis. Maybe some of you have been through a crisis like this where you just kind of start over, lose everything. <laughs> just uh, uh, lost like job, career, marriage, finances, uh, everything, and had to start over. And I remember thinking about starting over, and I thought, well, who am I going to be now? You know, I, I've been this person doing this job and this career for 25 years, who, who, who am I? And, and, and so I, I just began to explore, you know? I, I have this opportunity to be who I really want to be. And I got connected with these two really great Christian business guys out of Houston. They said, Blaine, we want you to help. We're starting this new uh, uh, venture. We, we'd love for you to come on and be a part of that with us. And and uh, we want you to head up the marketing and there's opportunity for ownership and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, man, that's, 
I think that might be me. Because my dad was an entrepreneur, he was a business guy, and I, and I remember I always thought, man, if I, ever, if I ever got into the business world, man, that, that'd, be my, that'd be my thing. And I, so, so I took it. I said, okay. Signed, did it. Did it for about a year. Had, had you know, good success. Loved these, these working with these, this, these guys and this team. Uh, it, was, it was healthy, it was, it was good. But I can remember getting to, to about a year after this, and I was thinking, oh, this isn't me. I, I, I wasn't made for this. I, 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 this is great. These guys are awesome. I, I love what they're doing. But I am not getting, I'm not getting filled up. I'm getting no energy from this. And I kept coming back to this idea that, what I love the most, what just fills my cup is seeing life transformation. That's what I love, whatever that looks like. Helping people see their lives grow and be cultivated and changed and, and transformed. And I thought, Lord, whatever that looks like, that's, that's what I want to do. But I, I, I promise you, I had to figure out what I wasn't before I ever got to who God really wanted me to be. So I want to give you three things this morning, three things that will help us to know who we are not. So here's number one. You are not somebody else's expectation. Hold on to that. You're not somebody else's expectation. I want you to listen to this masterful description of John the Baptist by Dr. Todd Warner. Here's what he said. There was something otherworldly about John. Plunked down in the Judean desert, adorned with skins, munching on locusts, he was an affront to civilization. You can almost hear polite society whisper to him, there are customs, John. There are ways of doing things. Surely your life can be a bit easier if you simply go along a bit. Clean yourself up, wait your turn, soften your message will introduce you to the right people. And in time, John, in time, you'll earn credibility and people will begin to listen to you, maybe even admire you. Now, wouldn't that be nice, John? Wouldn't that be easier, honeyed words like those whispered to Christ? But John the Baptist didn't care. He didn't care about fashion or fancy friends. He didn't need high cuisine or sophisticated small talk. The man was ratty and dirty. He smelled and he had bad teeth. It wasn't that John was an eccentric, vainly trying to be unique or distinctive, nor was he a scowling recluse spitting at his visitors. Not at all. In fact, he earnestly loved the motley rabble who listened to his prophecies and ambled to his river baptisms. He pitied them. He had no time for quibbling superficialities or hollow platitudes of daily life. John the Baptist didn't care about anything, anything but the truth. John the Baptist was his own man, not cowed by Pharisees or soldiers, townsfolk, or even King Herod. He told uncomfortable truths, and he rubbed people the wrong way. He stared too long, and he spoke too sharp. In a way, 
Four centuries of pent-up prophetic silence since Malachi were released in the thundering God-ordained declarations made by this seemingly feral man. Justice is here. Make straight, prepare, repent. Here is the winnowing fan. Here the unquenchable fire. But so is mercy. The rough will be made smooth. The kingdom is at hand and it's with fullness and grace. He was a hardcore truth teller, a defiantly scrappy prophet until the axe cleaved his head clean off his body. John the Baptist was his own man, except that he was God's man. wonder if we could live like that. wonder if we could dare to live into the expectations of God alone, that all that mattered was the audience of heaven, that we could really be, that we could really say, that we could really live into a life that was that sacred, that holy, that pure, that absent of cowering to expectations of another. There are two telltale signs of a prisoner of the expectation of others. The first telltale sign that we are living into others' expectations is we esteem tranquility over integrity. Let's just make everything smooth. Let's not, let's not muddy the waters. Let's make sure everyone's, you know, just all that matters is that, that we get along. All that matters is that, you know, unity over, over everything. You know, I, this, this idea, I, well, I know my mom can be cruel and prejudiced and she hurts people all the time, but we need to keep the peace in our family. Let's not say anything. We'd hate for her to get upset. Second telltale sign is we put money over morality. <laughs> that we don't want to upset the apple cart because that may result in less sales or, or less opportunities or, or less followers or, or, or less of something if we dare be and say and declare our truth and, and who we are and who Christ is through us. It's a hard, hard, difficult thing to give up living for the expectations of others. But it will be the greatest thing that you've ever done. And it doesn't, matter, it doesn't mean you don't care about people. It doesn't mean you don't care about what they think about you. It doesn't mean you walk around with this arrogant pride, but it just means that you know who you are. You know how God's asked you to live. The second thing is... You are not who you used to be. You are not who you used to be. The beauty of the gospel, the, the beauty of Jesus is this, this is not a moral cause. That'll, that'll mess with some of you. The gospel is not a moral cause. J Jesus didn't come to reaffirm all the Ten Commandments. Came to fulfill them, for sure, but in a way that we weren't quite ready for. In fact, in his first address, his first speaking to the world, he didn't mention any of them. In fact, he 
talked about the commandments and the Beatitudes. He said, you've heard it said, but here's what I say. Let's reinterpret this. Let's see it through a different place. And he went straight for the heart and the soul of men and women. Jesus had this way of speaking into our lives in such a way that we would figure out that it's, it's not about being better. It's, it's not about being gooder, if you will. It's about experiencing life transformation. It's about him taking away all of our used-to-be's, all of our past. One of the most powerful moments in all of Jesus' ministry is when he grabbed his followers one morning. They were in Galilee, which was home base, and he said, hey, we're going to go to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It's 26 miles away. It's a pretty good walk, but I've got something to say to you there. Something to say to us? Yes. Are we going to do miracles? No. Are we going to heal? No. Are we going to feed? No. What are we going to do? I'm just going to have a talk. 26 miles to have a talk. So they knew this talk was pretty important, like it was pretty meaningful, that, that he, was, he was going a long ways to make a point. And so they get up and they walk and they walk and they walk and they walk and they finally get to Caesarea Philippi. And it's this place that is a, uh, it's like this huge rock. You know when you get there, because it's a huge rock, 100 feet uh, high, 500 feet wide, and then this, this base of rock. And they get there and he, he's, he, he says, we're going to talk about identity. Basically, he's, he's, he's making something really clear. He's saying, I want, I want to be clear on who I am. I want to be clear on what you 12 are a part of. And then I want you to be clear on who you are. He speaks to identity. And look what he says. It says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that uh, the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my father in heaven. He said, I tell you now, you are Peter, changed his name, name change. Can you imagine that? We just kind of read that. What if you woke up one day and God visited you and told you to change your name? You just go out and you're meeting people. You go to the family, you know, Thanksgiving. Hey, Blaine. No, I'm not Blaine anymore. I'm Jim. <laughs> well, not Jim. Um, <laughs> people freak out. They think you lost your mind. God told you to change your name. But you see, there was purpose in this. He said, and I'll tell you in a minute, he said, you're Peter. And he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. And he said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. Loose on earth, loosed in heaven. So he identifies himself. He said, yes, I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm not just a prophet, not just a man. I am God in the flesh, here to set all things right, here to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And then he said, I want you to know what you're a part of. You're a part of this thing called the church. They'd never heard of the church. The church was not a thing. He said, you're gonna be in this church and, and this church is gonna be so beautiful and so powerful and so amazing that the gates of hell, all of darkness will not be able to withstand 
this thing called the church. And of course, we know in the Greek language that church in the Greek is 501c3 building, right? No. The church in the Greek is ecclesia. God's called out ones on assignment is literally what it means. It was a political term, ecclesia. Romans had ecclesias. They would call people together for an assignment in the kingdom of Rome to make things good, to make things better for Rome. And that's what Jesus was saying. He said, I'm calling out people like you, men and women like you, for kingdom work, to make things better, to bring kingdom to uh, the kingdom of heaven to the earth. And then he, he said, you need to know who you are. You know who I am. You know who the church is. But, but you need to know who you are. And he said, Simon, which meant listener, receiver, influenced. He said, you're no longer Simon. You are Peter, which meant rock. He said, there's stability. There's power. There's tenacity. There's perseverance coming into your life. You are radically changed. Some of us, and I know I was, one of these. I needed Jesus to change my name. Not my actual name, but what I named myself every day. There are people here today, and you name yourself daily. I just can't get a job. I'll never get a good job. You know, I just, you know, I'm just not a good worker. You know, I just, I, I just can't pay attention, or I, I, I'm just a loser. And you name yourself again and again and again. And maybe someone else named you growing up. Maybe you were rejected. Maybe you lost parent. Maybe you, you, you felt like you didn't belong at school. And somehow that name stuck with you. You're an outcast. You're a reject. You're not a part of the cool kids. You're different. You're weird. And you've held on to that name. You've named yourself again and again. And Jesus came to change those kind of names. He came to change what we've named ourselves. You ever heard this mantra? Man, this is popular. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Hear it all the time. Once a cheater, oh yeah, there's just some things they'll never change. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the kingdom of God proclaims. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says transformation, resurrection, a revolution of the soul is possible for every single human being. That God has this ability to change us. As I've said so many times, Jesus didn't come to make our bad good. He came to make the dead alive. It's not about getting better. It's about Jesus bringing us to life. Many of you have heard my story. 13 years ago, I was, uh, I was exposed. Uh, I was humiliated and shamed to uh, come out and admit that I'd suffered and lived and hid in a private world of sexual addiction for 23 years. No one knew about it. And I just kept hiding. And I just kept trying to, to, to quit and to stop. 
and make you know a month or two of progress and then right back where I was and then get worse. So all of that, all of that came out, and 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 by God's grace, it did. But I, I remember they sent me to uh, they sent me to therapy for 30 days in Phoenix, and then I came back and they said you need to get in as many 12-step groups as possible, every one you can. I mean, like two or three a week. You're you're in trouble. You you need help. So I get in four. I'm going Monday, Tuesday, Friday night, Saturday morning, every single week. And and how many, by a show of hands, uh, have ever uh, either been in a 12-step group or, yeah, very few, all right, that, that will admit, there's one, okay, thank you for your honesty, <laughs> or seen one on TV, okay? Most of us have seen a, a TV 12-step group. Well, they, they kind of go like this. This is kind of how they start. You get in a circle, got to be in a circle. Get in that circle, and the moderator, the, the, the leader, the, the host will kind of have the circle go around, and, and each person will, will it, you know, confess to who they are. And it, it goes something like this. You know, my name is, is Jim, right? And I, I'm disproportionately short. Uh, I... Um, <laughs> My name is Frank, and I'm a drug addict. And mine was always, and I've been going six months. I'd said this dozens and dozens of times. My name is Blaine, and I am a sex addict. Again, and again, and again. Because that's what you have to do. And in the addiction world, that's owning your stuff owning your stuff. Don't you dare say you're anything but that addict. There's a monster living inside of you. That's what they'd say. And so I'm driving one night, like I said, about six months later, and as I'm driving, I, I, I have this compulsion, this, this sense that if, if you're ever going to experience transformation, you have to check in differently tonight than you've ever checked in. And it will take courage, it will take strength, and you will feel the judgment of the room, but you have to do this. And so I did. I got to that room. There were 12 strong brothers and men that I knew very well. There was my counselor, Dr. Ken, leading the group. And they begin checking in around the room, and it gets to me, and I grab all the breath I can, and I said, my name is Blaine, and I am a beloved son of the Father who is being set free by the grace of God from my past addiction. And about half the room clapped, and about the other half just looked at me with fire in their eyes like, no, you're not owning your stuff. I'm gonna tell you, friends, that moment changed the course of my life. My trajectory changed from that moment on because it was in that moment that I acknowledged I am not my past. I'm not gonna live into the man that I used to be. I admit it, I acknowledge it, I confess it, I repent of it, and I, I so, so 
care and have compassion for the people that were hurt because of my past. But that is not me anymore. I love what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He said, if anyone is in Christ, and he was talking to a bunch of messed up people, he said, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away, and all things are new. Come on, somebody. Isn't that good news this morning? That you don't have to live up to who you were or who you've been. And the third thing that we are not is we are not your own. I am not my own. My life doesn't belong to me. And this is the most radical change you'll ever make in your entire life. Paul writes to that same messed up church and he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he said, listen, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He said, friends, you don't belong to yourself. Now, this is this idea that we're not our own, that we don't control our lives. It is anti-cultural. It is cross-cultural. I'm telling you, it is anti-American. Because in America, we, we pull up our bootstraps and we own our lives and we, we have this you know, sense of independence. And there's many things that I love about this country, even though I'm not an American, I'm a Canadian. Love about this country, it's why I live here, I love the freedom, but it is a freedom, I believe, that God has given us to not grab and get everything that we can possibly get in life, but it's a freedom to give our lives away to a world that needs Jesus. It's a freedom to proclaim the gospel freely as we can this morning. It's a freedom to, to go to work and be on mission for a purpose and for a reason that is bigger than ourselves. Jesus had a dream for us, and maybe this dream doesn't match what you thought God's dream was for you. But I promise you, if you embrace his dream, if you'll embrace it with everything you have, you will discover everything that God has for you in this life. Like the lights will come on, everything will open up. If we could just embrace this dream that Jesus had for us. And he said to his followers in Matthew 16, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It is so counterintuitive. It is so crossways to our culture. As we sang earlier, it is so backwards. But he said, I, I'm inviting you to give your life away. I'm inviting you to give up ownership of your life, to take off the for sale tag and just to say, my life belongs to Christ and Christ alone. He, he said, I, I want you to take up the cross. And what's really interesting is he hadn't even been to the cross yet. He actually invited us as followers to take up our cross before he went to his cross. And what is the cross? What does it mean to shoulder the cross? People have asked me, Blaine, I'm really, or they've asked me, they've said, uh, you know, coming out of addiction, especially that long, it, it must have taken like a really strong person 
it must have taken, you know, you know, it must have taken some, some incredible uh, commitments to be a better person. And my response has always been, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not better. And I'm not really stronger. That's really not what Jesus asked me to do. He called me to die. He called me to lose my life for his sake. In fact, really all Jesus ever offered me was the cross. That was it. And, and, and friends, I can tell you I didn't want it. I did not want the cross. In fact, I tried to avoid it. But I finally allowed the cross of Jesus to be laid on my, my shoulders. And maybe for the first time in my life, I, w- I was completely stripped of all the good I thought I was and that I possessed. And I, I came face to face with my own sinfulness, with my own evil, with my own soul. And I think maybe for the first time, I completely died to the idea of owning my life and living for, for him. But here's the good news is when we go to the cross, when we shoulder that cross, we, we never die on that cross alone. We, we are a part of a thorn-crowned Savior who became our everything. We die in him and his life returns. That we actually have no hope in ourselves, but in him we have hope of unimaginable proportions. The Father of love bends down and kisses our forehead. He bathes us in our filth. He lifts up our downcast eyes and he gives us his own name because he never called us to get stronger when we are weak. He never called us to get better when we are not so good. He called us to die so that he could bring resurrection life to us. Listen, know who you're not. I'm not living up to the expectations of others. My life is not my own. And I'm not my past. I'm not what I used to be. And that's why we come to this table. It's because this table declares your old life is finished. This table declares Jesus is all that matters. This table declares the cross. And we come to this table, it is really the highlight, it is really the centerpiece of this church and our gatherings and the gospel. And so together, we're going to say our liturgy. And uh, I want as we, as we say this liturgy to, to, to really mean it, to really declare it. Because as you say some of these words, some of them are going to be very, very meaningful to you. They're going to speak directly to your soul. So let's say this together. For the weary, the table is our rest. For the burdened, the table is God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immeasurable hope. For the divided and disconnected, 
The table is where we become one. And for the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's take just a couple moments to prepare our heart to receive the body and blood of Christ. As God has spoke to us through his word this morning, allow him to bring application to that. What does that mean for you this morning? And as we approach this table in just a moment, let's make sure our hearts are ready to receive all that God has for us. servers that are going to serve the the elements this morning and we do this for a reason this is a communal moment when the early church gathered they gathered in homes and they sat around dinner tables and a part of their gathering was they would pass bread and they would pass wine or juice and they did this every time they gathered and it was a shared experience it was never meant to be isolated or kind of alone was meant to be communal and meant to be shared because a part of what we receive when we receive the body, the, the bread and, and, and the blood, the, the juice, is we're not just receiving Jesus. We're not just kind of remembering his sacrifice, but we're also acknowledging on some level that we receive the body of Christ, the greater body of Christ, that we're, we're more than just a silo believer, that we need each other that we belong to each other, and that this only works if we're, if we're together. And, and the beauty of the, the, this bread and, and, and this juice is that it, it's not just, you know, some kind of metaphor. It, it, it's not, you know, Jesus didn't, you know, when he, he talked about communion and Passover, he, he didn't say, hey, this is kind of like my body. Or, or this is kind of like my blood, you know, the juice. He said, this is my body. And, and this, this is my blood. And, and we don't understand the mystery of all that, but on, but on some level, there is presence in this moment that Jesus is present in this moment. We don't know exactly how, but it's, it's sacred and it's powerful. Lives can be changed. Healing can happen. Hearts can be fixed. Relationships can be mended in moments like this. So let's pray. Let's prepare to receive. Father, thank you for the table. Thank you for this glorious tradition, this sacrament of the church that has been passed from one generation to another. And now a couple thousand years later, we're still here and we're still acknowledging Jesus you're in this moment and that we need it and that we need each other so as we come today to receive your body broken for us your blood shed for us may we be healed may we be whole may we be forgiven 
May we be transformed. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Come and let's receive the elements this morning.